Welcome to the Dr. Cheryl Ziegler Show, where we'll be talking about moving beyond burnout. I believe that in order to truly address today's mental health crisis, we need to create community and solutions around all aspects of our life that affect anxiety, depression, and loneliness. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Alexandra Solomon, clinical psychologist and professor at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. She is the author of Loving Bravely, and I am thrilled to welcome her today. How are you, Alexandra? I'm great. It's so good to see you. Thank you. So good to see you, too. I am excited to jump right in. Um, When I look through Loving Bravely, there are so many takeaways, but one of the first things I wonder about is you talk about this idea of a love classroom. Do you, can we start there and tell us what, what does that even mean? Right. Let's start there. It's a great place to start. <laughs> so this is um, the paradigm shift that I think is so essential for individual health and relational health is that we really start to take seriously the idea that all of our relationships are here to teach us. Um, It changes us from a stance of either I'm right and you're wrong, or you're right and I'm wrong, to a stance that's far more relational, where we're now shoulder to shoulder, looking together at the inevitable challenges, crises, problems, differences of opinion, personality differences that come up in all of our relationships, whether that's spousal relationships, parent-child relationships, friendships. Um, The data is clear that the quality of our relationships is a massive determinant in the quality of our lives. So at one, at the very sort of primary level, the love classroom is this idea that I take myself to be a student and a teacher in all of the relationships I'm in, right? That whatever my relationship is presenting me with is an opportunity for learning versus a mindset that's so easy to get into, which is that I'm frustrated with you. I'm frustrated with what you're doing that's making my life harder. Yeah. So away from that. Yeah. When, when could you give someone, how young could you start this concept of the love classroom that you're always a student and a teacher in all relationships? I love this. I love us talking with our kids this way. You know, so rather, I mean, with, with kids, it's so, we so quickly get into power struggles, don't we? where it's like either my way or it's your way. And I think with our kids, we can say, listen, we have a problem. You and I have a problem. I need A, you need B. I wonder if we can work together and figure out another way through this. You know, just that shift is from power struggle to relationship. Yeah, I love that. So interestingly though, your, your book starts off with starting from within. So what do you mean by that? And really dissect that for people, because I don't think people typically start there when they think about love. Right. Yeah. So I, um, I often say that when we, when we adults, when we were little, we were like basically these little social scientists in our home growing up. We were absorbing a ton of messages um, in our houses growing up. And so it was, we watched how the adults communicated with each other, related to each other. And we were at the receiving end of a particular kind of treatment from the adults in our house. And so all of those become this sort of template, the love template. And it is sort of downloaded inside of us and we carry it into adulthood. We know that adult romantic relationships replicate 
the kind of attachment process that we have when we're little with the adults who take care of us, right? So we we replicate old stuff. There is no bypass for that. That is happening. Old patterns are coming with us into our relationships, our romantic relationships as adults. The only question is whether or not we're gonna be brave enough, humble enough, and curious enough to really look and unpack the ways in which our own childhood shapes how we love. I love that. There's a lot there. T take me through this scenario. This is what I hear in my private practice a lot. People will say, um, I'm broken. And I was broken, you know, maybe my whole adolescence. And then I became a young adult and I met this person. And they helped fix me or they made me whole. And then that's how they view themselves still as broken and then relying on this other person to have made them whole. And I always find this to be a really tricky thing to navigate, helping people through. Tell me, like, what do you do with that? And do you hear that as well? I hear that as well. I do hear that as well. And I mean, it's not entirely wrong. So I'm always looking for, I'm always looking for these both ands because there are just so many of those in our relationships. So it's a both and. Somebody, somebody who has that paradigm is not wrong because it is true that um, if somebody comes out of a traumatic childhood with um, some kind of attachment challenges, right, some kind of insecure attachment of some kind, a healthy, loving adult relationship will literally change attachment styles. There's been research that shows we can go from insecurely attached through securely attached through the power of a healthy, intimate partnership. So that's... That is possible, but I, the, the, the shadowy aspect that you and I are both in touch with is it's such a um, handing over of power and agency to somebody else. It's sort of, um, it's oftentimes what happens from a painful childhood is we carry shame. And so then to be loved feels like I'm only okay in your eyes and love can't, love from somebody else can't outpace shame. So it may kind of take the edge off of shame for a while, but then when the, um, you know, when the stuff hits the fan and our partner can't be there for us, our partner can't validate us, then we kind of circle back to that core of shame. So there's always, I think, the need to work on our own. Tending to our childhood wounds is always there. We can have a loving partner and still need to do our own tending to our childhood wounds. Because if we're not playing it out with our partner, we're going to play it out with our kids. Yeah. <laughs> There's not really a way of getting around that sense of that 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 horrible, wretched, shame-loaded fear that I'm broken. There's That's just, that's a reckoning that's very, very personal, you know? I do know. So what I'm wondering is if I'm listening to this right now and I'm not in therapy, right? Um, and maybe there's some stuff going on. Do you feel like you need to be in therapy to really love bravely and do self-discovery. Can you do that on your own? How do you how do you guide people on this? Right. Well, I'm definitely pro therapy, and I um, I think we do have a way a ways to go um, around not just reducing stigma around therapy, but also increasing availability of therapy because because like we're saying, intimate partnership and parenting are just places where old stuff gets kicked up. And so maybe somebody was fine through adolescence, through early adulthood, but then they get married or make a significant commitment and the, the stuff gets awakened or have a child and old traumatic stuff gets awakened. So definitely a plug and a shout out for therapy. Um, 
But yeah, there I think there are relational self-awareness practices that people can do outside of therapy. And one is noticing noticing how we'll go from it's you know the Viktor Frankl there's this beautiful Viktor Frankl quote that's about the space between stimulus and response that there's a space between stimulus and response and in that space lies all of human freedom so the idea that a frustrating thing happens out there that's the stimulus and then my response is oftentimes informed by my sort of constellation of wounds and triggers and tender spots. So if I can notice that, right, sort of catch and notice that I'm doing that thing again, I'm doing that thing where I tell myself the story that I'm broken, uh, the story that everyone's going to leave me in the end, the story that I mess everything up, and noticing, starting to notice that that's actually a story. Just naming that that's a story and that I'm prone to that story or I'm at risk of that story because of my past gives us that chance to pause, nice big like hand on the heart, some deep breaths, attending to all of that stir inside. And as we do that, it gives us so many more options for how to respond in a, in a more effective way, right? Because when we just are reactive, we're either gonna rage or we're gonna like turtle, you know? Shrink down, pull back, shut down. And when we can kind of catch it and bring ourselves some self-compassion, we can we notice other options that are available to us. So two things. Uh, I want you to tell people who are listening who Viktor Frankl is. Not everybody might know who he is, right? And he's so important to know about. And two, um, I think when I discovered the notion of stories, like that's just a story, and those are stories, it was pretty life-changing for me. And so I want you to break that down even more, like really break it down for somebody who might just not have access to this kind of information. Tell them about what stories are and how we create them and how we can change them. Yeah, great, great. So Viktor Frankl is an Austri was an Austrian psychiatrist. Um, he was a Holocaust survivor. And, um, and so his legacy was kind of working around how we make meaning, how we take the outside world and we internalize it and the way in which we internalize it either opens up freedom or feels like these, um, you know, little prisons. So, um, um, around this idea of stories, right. So we, as, as human beings, you know, we are meaning making creatures. We make meaning so quickly. And it feels very much to us like capital T truth, right? The only possible way to see the fact that it took you two hours to respond to my text is that you don't respect me. But capital T truth. That is the only, you know, four out of five dentists would say, <laughs> like everybody would agree. My friends would agree. It feels like capital T truth. And so that is, I agree that when, that as I started to get my head around that idea of stories and how stories either constrict us or expand us, it's pretty life-changing. So just the mere act of saying the story I'm starting to tell myself when it takes you two hours to text me back is that you must not respect me very much. Yep. That's a, that's a big, that's a, that's a difference that makes a difference. It is. And it leaves space. So I'll say that even in my own marriage, 
um, sometimes my husband will say to me, well, that's your story around that. And, or I'll say, you know, my story around this is this. And there's something that gives it just a little bit of space where it's so much different than you did this or you didn't do this. It just slows it down and takes the edge off just enough that actually even leaves possibility for curiosity or wonder or potentially I'm wrong. But my story is that you were late today because you didn't really even want to get together, you know, and then it gives possibility to like, oh, no, no, just a very different, less reactive, defensive response on the other end, don't you think? Yes, right. The absence of saying the story I'm telling myself is, is it's right. It's a total invitation to defensiveness. And then when our partner gets defensive, yeah, but you, you know, were late last week or yeah, but at least I, blah, 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 then the core yearning, the little, the wounded part, the, the hurt feeling inside of us goes wholly ignored. So it's, it's ineffective, right? Because I, the truth of the matter is I feel hurt that it took you two hours to text me back. But if I go into accusation, this means you don't respect me. It's, it invites defensiveness and now we're a million miles away from my hurt feeling. And my hurt feeling may be a very old, tender little girl part of me that really didn't feel like she was much of a priority in her house because whatever, her mom was depressed, her father was addicted, there were, you know, the youngest of seven children, whatever, whatever those, those stories are that the little girl or the little boy inside of us carries it's so sad when our reactivity keeps us from getting the very thing we need, which is just a little bit of validation. My feelings were hurt. I got scared. I missed you and whatever that is. Right, right. So what I'd love to do is break down right now what you're talking about in terms of your love classroom. Do you see men and women generally as different students in your love classroom? <laughs> um. No, I think that I think that because gender role socialization shapes so much the degree to which men and women feel like they have access to their emotional world. I don't think that I think that we just teach men and we teach little boys and little girls to wear different kinds of masks. You know, we teach girls to um, separate themselves from their deep longing and their needs by being people pleasing. And we teach boys that to feel confused, to feel afraid, to feel unsure is weakness. So we teach them how to wear a mask of surety, of um, certainty, of power. And so I think the masks are different, but behind the masks are the same central longings, which are, do you see me? Do you understand me? And am I okay? That's that's not gendered. Like the kind of core core longing inside of each of us is not gendered. But yes, I think that based on how we socialize our boys and our girls, they end up wearing different kinds of masks. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to, let's say, a woman listening to this right now that says, you know, my husband is just so out of touch with any of this and and he you know I don't know how I can get him to even talk about his childhood never mind change old patterns never mind start using this li different languaging of like I have a story and you have a story where 
Where do you begin? Because I imagine that sometimes people show up to you and one is a willing participant and one is, is scared or hesitant. Um, and how do, you, how do you help people get to getting on the same page? Right, right. Well, the first thing I would do is want to flag for her that when she starts like, to use that language of how am I going to get him to, I want that to become language that she kind of notices as a little bit of a red flag, that that's a desire to control from a place that's disempowered. Um, and I would want her to kind of be a little bit more curious about, I want to understand you. I want to understand your story. I want to understand how to love you in a way that feels good. And for her to, to know that she's had many more years and gotten much more support around how to language her internal experience than he has. So she really needs to like downshift, slow down and be quiet and kind of allow him to unfold. And oftentimes when men start to language the stuff, they're hearing themselves say it for the first time. So it requires her patience and it requires her 1000% non-judgment, right? Even if what she starts to hear is about something about his mother, and she, of course, has her whole <laughs> network of feelings about this man's mother, and she may want to be like, aha, now it all makes sense, and it really validates this complicated relationship I have with my mother-in-law. Uh-uh, nope, sit on that, breathe through it, and just really decenter your experience, because if the thing you're saying you want is more emotional vulnerability from him, it's going to require you to slow down, decenter your experience, drop your agenda, and just hold space while he potentially languages stuff that he hasn't languaged to anybody ever. I love how you just said that, um, that she's had many more years of experience of having her feelings validated or wanting to hear her feelings, that socialization piece. So it feels like that is a great tip for people, especially for women who may be listening, to really keep that in mind. I've had, I've likely had many more years of experience with this. This is just, this is new. This is new information. This is a new process. Um, so I think that comes from a pretty loving kind of place, right? I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's more loving. And, then, and also for her to know that as, that, you know, sometimes I think we want we want our men to be vulnerable, but then when they get vulnerable, it can be a little scary and unsettling. Mm -hmm. So just to for just her to stay really present to being careful what she wishes for, and to um, just kind of like tend to whatever his vulnerability stirs up in her, right? Because it's it's a little bit it's easy to be like I want him to talk about his feelings, but then are you gonna? Okay, so are you ready to be present to whatever those feelings are? Because it, you know, it's, it adds a new dimension. And when I hear you use the term more emotional vulnerability, I think it's just been, I feel like, the last few years with this revolution of Brene Brown's message that vulnerability, I think, for the masses has become a real thing and actually empowered and you know, there's a whole paradigm shift where vulnerability is no longer looked at as a weakness, but looked at as a strength. I don't know, you tell me, I don't know and I don't imagine that men have quite yet arrived at the same rate as women have in terms of viewing vulnerability as a strength. But what are you seeing around that? 
Well, I tell you what, I it just immediately thought of um, the, the undergraduate class that I teach. So I teach this relationship education class called Marriage 101 at Northwestern and have been doing it my whole career. We have more men enrolled in our class this year. This is our 19th year teaching it. We have more men uh, and male-identified students than we've ever had. And they walk in the room and they're like ready to go. You know, they're unpacking feelings. They um, they can name the gender role conditioning that they have internalized. I heard a beautiful story this week of a, a male student athlete whose friend was in the locker room crying and he felt the urge to go over and and fix his friend's pain and tell his friend it was gonna be okay. And he caught himself. And instead he sat next to his friend, put his arm around him and just let him cry until he was done crying. And I was like, hallelujah. It's a new day. Like I wanted to hug that man's parents and just be like, this is, you know, this is the future. And it's so much better for all of us. Yeah. I just, I just got so chills. All, oh yeah. Chills. Total chills. chills. Yep. I've yep. chills up and down my spine to, to envision that. And, and like anything that starts any kind of movement or any, any kind of shift, I think in society, it starts small and then it, you know, it takes a while to grow. Where I know you've got amazing things that you're doing at Northwestern. Where do you see, where do we go? How do we branch it out so that more undergraduate students have the ability to have a class like this? Or parents are, you know, learning more on how to raise their boys. Like, what do you think is the next micro step in making this much greater reach to boys and men? Right. Well, I think it starts, I think it's, I think it starts within. I think it starts with all of us just first acknowledging that we have internalized messages about boys should be and girls should be. There's no, there's no bypass for that. And so it is the work of a lifetime to notice all of the really super sneaky ways in which those messages kind of um, take us out of authenticity. And again, noticing like when, you know, as we're raising our sons and our daughters, noticing when we have that knee jerk urge to make them different than they're being right now. And sometimes it, sometimes our story is, no, 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 I have to change this aspect of you because the world out there is going to mistreat you. So we, in some ways, become the perpetuators of these problematic behaviors, but we tell ourselves that we're doing it to spare them or save them. And I think that's kind of fraught. And I would invite all parents to check in with themselves around when you're asking your kid to restrict something that's authentic, whether it's a boy around his emotionality or a girl around whatever, her sexuality, you know, it, it sometimes is because of a fear that the world will misunderstand them. And that's in some ways then, that's how we perpetuate these really limited um, spectra of experience that are, you know, gendered. Okay, so interestingly, your answers really it is from starting from within, but you're also sort of like, it's starting from within each home. It's, it's the way we're raising our boys and girls. It's the way we're raising our children to understand their own feelings and respond to the environments around them. So even though you're teaching this at Northwestern to probably hundreds and hundreds of students, you really do think it's, it starts in the home. I do. I think that's a. I think that that's a really beautiful place for these conversations to be happening. I talk a lot about 
um, I call them intergenerational love dialogues. And I've written articles with like sort of lists of questions that I love parents and teens or parents and young adults talking together about love, about relationship, about emotion. Um, because it's just, and, and I like when parents listen as much as they talk or listen more than they talk. So yeah, I, you know, I think as a marriage and family therapist, I never fully, um, outgrow that idea of the power of what, what we learn in our little nests. You know, I think changing policy is absolutely vital. Um, but changing our homes is, is not to be underestimated. I love that. So we are going to wrap this first section. We're going to do a part two with you because you have so much wisdom to share with us. But I do want to say for people listening, Viktor Frankl wrote Man in Search of Meaning. And I do, I'm sure you agree with me. I think it's a, it's a book everybody probably needs to read at some point in their life. It'll come to you. Thank you for all of this wisdom. And we're going to come back and do part two and talk about some other relationship challenges. Thank you.